dark side. Light this bitch up. up everybody my name is James D Fiore and this is Black Ball. I am super pumped for today's show. When I was a kid um, there was a few things that you had to do if you were really into hip-hop music. One of them was you had to find the only college radio station that would play hip-hop on Saturday afternoons and you had to like if you lived where I lived you had to be a kind of a MacGyver to even get a reception and that's just the way it was but you also had to know about a certain record store in Toronto and that store was called Play to Record everybody went there everybody that was a DJ everybody that was into hip-hop everybody that was into electronic music everybody that was into reggae went to the store it became a cultural touchstone for many of us. And a lot of people uh, really stake their careers or credit this store for making them who they were as DJs. And there's a whole culture that's built around it. So when my guest today put out a documentary called Drop the Needle, and he was gracious enough to send me a link so I could watch it, I was completely thrown back into a time that I hadn't thought about in a long time. So here to talk to us about his film is director Rob Freeman. Rob, how are you, buddy? Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I, I, I want to first ask you where you grew up and, and how did this documentary get conceived? Well, I grew up in Kingston. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during my time in Kingston, was always trying to, you know, uh, make something happen in terms of uh, film, uh, whether it be documentary or a fiction story. Uh, always try to make something happen, but always uh, having the assumption that I knew uh, I, I could do it without needing any practice. I could just kind of like get in there with, uh, you know, just sort of a cold, basically, right? Yeah. I had to learn the hard way that that was not the case. Uh, I made some things in the past that were not very good at all. I made, uh, <laughs> in 2008, me and my friend, uh, Neil Acheria, we made a documentary called Bang the Party. And it was about street promotion, flyering and postering. Okay. Um, I had a really sort of a, a, a consumer grade camera with the uh, a shotgun mic. We went out and did some uh, interviews. I didn't think about lighting. I didn't think about sound. We were interviewing Jonathan Ramos uh, with like an air conditioner happening. And I was oblivious to the idea of like, okay, I should maybe worry about the air conditioner, right? Yeah. Uh, we filmed the footage that would probably be good for a 20-minute short, but I was so dead set on, like, the 90-minute features, so I pushed, like, 20 minutes worth of material to 90 or probably 85 minutes. Right. It was horrendously bad. Horrendously bad. <laughs> but at the same point in time, it's probably the most important thing uh, that I have done up till now because it was the thing that let me know, okay, number one, you don't, I don't have the talent to do everything. So what do I'm good at? What I'm not good at? What do I need help with? Uh, number two, you know, even the things that I think I might be good at, I still need to be better. Like where does the improvement have to happen? Where is the uh, where's the things that I need to to work on to get where it needs to be done? So it was a really bad project, but at the same point in time, it was a great project for me personally because that was a stepping stone that brought us to where we are right now with Drop the Needle. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's one of those universal things, right? Like there are no mistakes, only lessons, right? So exactly right. Yeah. It's good that you that you got back on. 
Um, let's start off by playing the trailer, if you don't mind. Um, this is, uh, and, it, and it speaks for itself, but we'll, when we come back, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to talk to you about because there's something that this movie made me discover um, that I didn't know before, or at least didn't think about. So this is your trailer uh, for your documentary, Drop the Needle. If you were a DJ in the city, like, everybody was there. Everybody was packed. Yeah, I saw fistfights. They would come out with records and people were grabbing like crazy. This was the meeting place. It was communal and it was live and it was alive. House DJs, the mixtape DJs, the radio DJs, the club DJs, the strip club DJs, like everybody would find their way to play the record. Whether you're a promoter, whether you're a DJ, whether you're an artist, you needed Eugene. I really tried to push good music, good new music. Take a look through my eyes and you'll see what I see. Take a look through my eyes and you'll see what I see. Front of the store is selling everything from like pornographic movies and you know fake handguns and all kinds of crap. They only had about a hundred records in the store. So you, you walk in, you're like, am I at the right place? The back was empty. You know, nobody wants to rent behind a store. Like, who would do that? You know what I mean? Only me. <laughs> record store that you like all these big dog DJs are there and you're like whoa 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 that's all oh, wow, wow okay this is what they do it's only when we started doing this documentary I oh maybe we did have some something to do with it every day y'all the right way y'all come on come on check this out uh y'all check this out like before before i get to comment look at the list I, i'm gonna read the list because uh, a lot of my listeners are listeners and not viewers but the interviewees of this of this documentary is crazy kid cut aki abe carlene tam matt c peter primani frankenstein jeff duke cardinal official Linda, Lin, this is a big list. Lindo Poo, Dave Cooper, starting from scratch, DJ Agile, Jonathan Ramos, DJ Kimo, Danio, Marcy, Deacon, Tough Dumplin', Keegan Tam, Eugene Tam, uh, who's the owner, Maestro Fresh West, Donna Tam, David Ahmad, DJ X, Adrian Bernard, Ron Nelson, DJ Grouch, Marcus Visionary, <coughs> Shams. You know what? I'm not going to read all that. There, there, there's so <laughs> many people. I, I know. It's just like, wait, wait a second. Should I be doing this? So I'm going to read the ones that I want to read. Socrates, Infinite. Um, DJ Dopey, Jazzy, Mel Boogie, like it, Russell Peters. There's just so, like, everybody is in this documentary. Who was the person that booked these interviews? Was it you? Oh, me and my, uh, uh, Neil Acharya, who's a co-producer, uh, mm. co-writer with me. It was us, uh, the, the combination of us two. Yeah, because that is, like, one of the things about making a documentary that can be really difficult is that, is being able to get a, a large list of people like that to sit down yeah. and talk to you. But this was an emotional thing for a lot of them, wasn't it? Well, that's the, there were some things that we did. I, I come from a sales background. So in terms of like some things that we did to kind of help things out, we certainly applied that. But at the end of the day, there's a reason why uh, Eugene Tam is, is so beloved. And like, you know, the documentary is capturing what's already there in terms of the feelings that people have towards Eugene and the store. So I think a lot of people really believe that there should have been a documentary about the subject matter made anytime in the past 15 years, if we're going to be honest. So once someone came along that kind of, 
you know, had a little bit of momentum towards making it happen. Yeah. Um, it was uh, it was a lot easier than uh, even I expected, just because of the fact that so many people love Eugene, love the store, and want to see this happen. And so it was just a matter of them kind of trusting myself and Neil as, as being the people that could make it happen in a way that creatively will be satisfied. Yeah, and creatively, you, you, you hit it out of the park. We were talking a bit about this off air, but... Uh, you know, a lot of people who make documentaries about a subject that is um, sort of like geographically centric, I guess I would say, uh, they, in order to try to capture a larger swath uh, or, or a bigger niche audience or whatever, they will try to nibble the edges of things that don't stay focused on the actual plot of the idea of the, of the story. Yeah. And this documentary, even though it was almost two hours long, it, it felt like you were really loyal to the meat of the message, which is that this was a cultural game changer. Can you, can you explain if that was your thinking when you were making this? Yeah, it was. Uh, when I was making it, the, I was looking at it from a three audience, like as a, there was three audiences. The first audience was myself. So as I was putting it together, you know, is it something that I like? You know what I mean? Like I've been watching movies for quite a while. Yeah. I kind of know what I like and what I don't like from what I watch things. So this, I'm, I'm making something that is kind of a reflection of me as my DNA in it, right? So the first audience is, is me. The second audience is what I call the core audience, the people that A, know, uh, know about Play to Record, or B, maybe they don't know about Play to Record, but they like uh, hip-hop music, house music, drum and bass music, or they... Uh, or, or record collectors, even like someone that kind of uh, has uh, is into the culture itself or into the record collecting uh, aspect of it, uh, even if they don't know play the record personally. That was this. That was a core audience. The second audience I was after. Mm -hmm. uh, the third audience is the ones that don't know about play record, don't really like the music, kind of like you know the outside of the core. Um, and obviously, I want them to enjoy this movie as well but from my perspective i really wanted to satisfy the core audience so when i went into this it was about okay me and the core let's make us happy let's do something for us and then let's just hope that through the uh the fact that you know we have interesting characters if you don't like the music you're learning about this great guy about eugene you're learning about this cult. like we're hoping to expose this story to people that might not be interested in it as much as possible, but I'm not going to base my creative uh, a mindset on that audience. I'm looking at the people that I know are going to enjoy this. I want to make it for them. So that's kind of my mentality. And then, you know, it's, I'm not no, that, was the, that was the way to do it. That, 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 it, it was so, um, it, it was, it, it was honest, right? Like, and, and, it, and it was loyal to that idea. It also made me realize, and it's not like I didn't know this before, because I, I find hip hop culture to be um, a unifying force, right? like a united nations of culture, basically. Like I know where it started. I know that it's a black culture. I understand all of that stuff, but it is so inviting. I, I had the DOC on, I guess a week ago, and I was talking to him about how, you know, like if I went to like Japan or fucking, you know, Finland or wherever, and I saw somebody with like a t-shirt that had the DOC's picture on it. All of a sudden language barriers are dropped and we can just have a conversation because hip hop lends itself for that kind of like, um, it's like its own language, right? Yeah. And, and when I watched this documentary, like Eugene Tam, I, I don't know if he's Korean or whatever, but he was raised in Trinidad, right? So he's right away, he's like a walking United Nations poster, right? Yeah, and then yeah. all the people that come into the store are people from all walks of life. Yeah. Did that ever 
Um, did you ever sort of take a take a good look at that? Were, were, were you like, wow, this is like all these worlds are coming together and this is the one spot that they're hitting? Yeah, so the, the, a little more specifically, it was actually from the, the more the, uh, the specifically the music aspect of it. And it was it's, it's interesting because it's something that we didn't get into uh, as much as we were hoping to for this particular movie. I'm uh, hoping in the future movies we can is the idea of uh, open concept, open formats, right? Open format DJs. In the 80s and early 90s, a lot of the DJs, when you went out to clubs and bars, they didn't just play hip hop music. They didn't just play house, early house, disco, uh, techno. They, they played a reggae. They played a little bit of everything, mm -hmm. right? They didn't just play one. They played a set of this, a set of that, a set of this. So when you went to play a record, you had, uh, you know, you had some of the, uh, the DJ slash employees there playing uh, uh, music inside the store. So you're in there going to go buy that uh, 93 till infinity uh, uh, song. And all of a sudden you're hearing M1 uh, feel the drums, which is a house track. Right. And now you're getting exposed to different music. You're talking to Jason Palma, who one of the, the most uh, well known in terms of having uh, the, the best knowledge of music in the city, telling you, hey, I know you came in here for this. But check this, this, and this out of these multiple different genres of music. And now inside this store, you're you're getting exposed to a whole bunch of different, not just you know, different people, different cultures, but also yeah. the different music that comes from that. And you're learning new things and you're taking that with you. And that's when you all of a sudden you get your fusion, right? You're mixing a little bit of this with that, and you're you're making new sounds out of uh, of this environment. So it is definitely something that we we noticed. Uh, and heard about uh, during our interviews was that aspect of these different people, you know, different mindsets colliding together and, and forming something new. Yeah, 100%. So I, I was telling you a bit off air as well that um, so the, the thing that Play the Record did as well is that it gave other entrepreneurs the idea to try to open up a record store. And one of those, I don't know if you, in your, in your research or if anyone ever brought this up when you were making the film, but there was a place in Oshawa. It literally started off as a van called Record Bar. And the Record Bar van would go to high schools at lunch and sell hip hop out of the back of the, of the van. Like it, 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 was, it was amazing. And then they got a place on uh, like uh, King Street in Oshawa. Yeah. And I went there when I was like 16. And there was a guy there that uh, I don't even know if I knew him at the time. I don't think I did. Um, a guy named Jim Sharp, who's like a, he's from here, but he DJs in the UK. He does like hip house and, and hip hop stuff uh, and lots of really cool remixes. Oh, Jim Sharp. I recognize that name. Yeah. I, I uh, Jim LeBold is his real name. And uh, so I went there and, and I told him I was an MC and he put on a beat and I spit and he liked it. So he gives me the number of this guy named Nigel Williams, who I am still super close with today. So Nigel and I were talking yesterday and we're like, is Play the Record the reason that we're, we're homies? <laughs> and we came to the conclusion that maybe, like synchronicity is a funny thing, but that there was a pixie dust about this place though, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, at that time period, you didn't have the social media or you didn't go online. You had to get out of the house. If you wanted to interact with people, and like, like even like uh, things like promoters, right? Let's say you're a DJ and you want to learn a little bit more information about upcoming event, uh, uh, different clubs, different uh, shows, learn about different gigs that might be available. You couldn't go online to do that. You had to get out of the house and go to the hub. And the hub yeah. was, it wasn't just Play the Record. Like we, one thing we, we stress is that Play the Record was a very, very important hub. It wasn't the only one, but it was definitely a very important one. 
and people would go down to play a record and they would socialize and not only were they there for the music but they were also there to learn a little bit more about things that related to their job because that's the other thing too is that people went to play the record it was a it was a, it was work right you you had to get the latest song because there's only like 10 copies of a of a record there's 50 people fighting for it and at that time period i don't know how it is now right it's like i'm not a dj myself so i'm not sure how it is now but at that time period breaking music was critical and so you had to get be the that one of the 10 to get that record if you didn't you're not breaking the record and you have to wait till the next week so it was a job for sure for a lot of people and they went down there and they learned about things for their job through the interactions and socializations with socialization with other people did you ever ask any of uh like did you ask eugene or anyone that used to work at play to record um if there was a cap on how many 12 inches they could get of a certain track or a certain album no that that never i don't know what that one okay just because it's a because it was really it was kind of funny like um you know because the djs that worked there would be like okay well, i'm taking that putting it in my yeah they did that yeah <laughs> yeah and i was and i was sitting there watching and i was like why wouldn't eugene just buy a whole bunch of them <laughs> you know what i mean like why wouldn't yeah you there must have been some sort of cap um but it was hard to get music back then man like it was yeah really hard to get hip-hop back in the early 90s it, it yeah. was you know like you know eight, the big stores didn't have a good selection um did you did uh, rotate this ever come into your purview at all when you were doing the documentary or are they all rock and roll i don't even know well, i don't know either because they never did come into it the ones that they come into it the uh, follow up on your point there is the fact that when someone was at uh, played a record if they didn't get the record they wanted they what they would have to do is run out the front door run up the street about two one or two blocks to yeah. uh tracks yeah which is the other record store to stay on the street and see if they had it so tracks was certainly the one that i we we heard about the most in terms of like the relationship between played record there was star sound there was carnival at first and then played record came when those were around but then uh carnival closed and then it was star sound turned the tracks and it was played a record and tracks for the majority of the 90s as like the two Main yeah. I know there's definitely more record stores, especially Sam the Record Man, which was the other way. Yeah, but those Cheapies, terms, I think, yeah, Cheapies, A and A was around. Um, record, the uh, Record Peddler, I think it was something like that. I don't know what genres of music they did because for us, when we were kind of going through it, we were just hearing what everyone was saying, and everyone was saying Star Sound, Carnival, Tracks, played a record. So that was kind of the ones we focused on. But there's yeah. definitely more and definitely great record stores out there. Just those were the ones that we came across the most. So those are the ones we focused on. Uh, Eugene Tam, let's talk about him for a second. The owner of played a record. Uh, he, one thing that viewers of your documentary will soon learn um, once they get halfway through is that he's a lot more likable than the dude that owned tracks. <laughs> Right. I like the guy. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I like George. Personally, I've only known George for an hour in my entire life. I've only known him for an hour. I'm sure he's the nice I'm sure he's a nice guy. That was guy. a fun hour, though. He was, he was a fun guy. But yeah, like, yeah. Eugene's a little bit more, uh, you know, they're different. They're different for sure. But Eugene has, I, I don't know if it's humility or if he's just so busy that he didn't realize, but he said something, I think it was in the trailer even, that he didn't <laughs> understand the impact that he had until you, until you made the documentary. I find yeah. that astonishing. Yeah, I did too. But I also, I do believe it though, too. If anything is, I do believe it. Um, but I, I think that, you know, from Eugene's perspective, I, I, I don't know if this is true or not. So let me just say that off the top. I don't know if this is necessarily true, but the impression I get was that when Eugene, uh, when Surratt, you know, listen, the, the business of Play to Record changed once he hit the 2010s because of technology, something that we talked about in the movie. Yeah. 
Um, so for him to see less and less people there, see less and less business, I don't think he just ever really thought, like, you know, he might have thought he was just had that flash in the pan. I don't think he ever thought about the fact that he has such an impact. I think he knew that business was good. I think he knew that there was a, it was busy. But then all of a sudden the store is not busy, you know, and then he's dealing with COVID all of a sudden. So, like, I think with him it's just a matter of, like, you know, he, he just looked at it, he, he just thought it was a business that had a big up and it was coming down. And he didn't see the 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 uh, the the, uh, the web of, of effect that he had beyond uh, the store itself. Can you describe the impact that the store had on not on DJs but on rappers? I'm talking <coughs> to basically all of the you know Mount Rushmore Canadian rappers, right? Like like, can you give me an idea of of the impact that it had on them, especially cats like Socrates, who's my favorite, by the way, all time MC. Well, Socrates was a little different just because of the fact that he, uh, he recorded his uh, very first release in the basement of Play the Record under the Step and Vega uh, yeah. label. So Play the Record had its own label uh, called Step and Vega, right? Play the Record, yeah. Uh, and Socrates wasn't the first release under the label. Uh, 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 MC by the name of Apple and Orange was. Um, but Socrates did release his first song under the label called Still Caught Up, right? And that was the very first. And Socrates said, like, one thing about Eugene was that because Eugene had the connections uh, overseas in terms of, like, record distribution, he was able to take his records that he was pre uh, making uh, with Socrates and get it out of the country and bring exposure outside of the country oh, to wow. the artists. <laughs> that was a little bit different for Socrates because Socrates recorded there. Now, his, Eugene's uh, uh, asked a relationship with some of the um, – uh, the MCs comes from the fact that, you know, you, the MCs couldn't go to the bigger chain record stores and say, hey, here's my independent record. Will you sell it for me? They're going to say no. What people had to do is something similar to what you said. People had to go in the street corners. Like maybe they were in a van as well. They had to go to the street corners, sell their mixtapes, sell their 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 records and, and sell it that way because they had no other outlet to do that except for places like Eugene. You can go into say, hey, Eugene, I have... 50 copies of this record. Will you put it up for me? And Eugene was really, really a nice guy. He really actually, he did want to help people out. I believe that fully. And so he was giving them a place to sell their records when they were having trouble finding other places to sell it. Like, what are you going to do? If you make a record at that point in time, you need a place to sell it, someone to collect the money, to do all the, that that type of uh, business uh, aspect of it. And Eugene was offering that assistance for uh, artists at that point in time. He, he's so earnest, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's salt of the earth. Nice. Like he just seems like a real, like a real dude. Like he doesn't seem like he, I mean, I, I don't know him obviously, but it doesn't feel like he has, uh, you know, uh, any, like any type of negative <laughs> like personality trait. No, he, but, he but you know, the, here, here's the thing though. The funny thing about Eugene is that uh, Eugene's kind of no, there was a part of the movie I had in there that was a little bit about his character that I had to cut out just for, for timing. But the one thing about Eugene is that he's kind of known for being a little bit rough when you first meet him. If you first meet him, he'll be short, maybe a little bit rough. And I remember the first time I met him, um, my colleague, Neil, had already talked to him about the uh, movie a little bit, right? And I went in to kind of introduce myself. And he was like, yeah, you know, very short, very to the point, wasn't saying anything. And I left the store thinking to myself, how in the heck... Are we going to make a good documentary where this guy is the main character? Because this guy is terrible. <laughs> was that like a was that like a defense mechanism? Because he's probably heard all the bullshit before. Is that sort of what that shortness is, or is it just his personality that that you have to kind of weed through before you find him? No, I think it's that because his his uh, one thing you'll see about the movie is learning about his mom and dad. 
Now, his dad was known as being a security guard, very tough, very, like, straight, like, you know, uh, by the book, like, no, not much joking going on with him. Yeah. And so I always got the impression, and I, again, I'm not the biggest expert. Other people would know better than I do, but I always got the impression that the very first time you ever meet Eugene, you're meeting, you know, him's dad, his, you know, his dad's uh, DNA part. Right, right, right. And then when you kind of break through that, that's when you kind of get to know the real Eugene, which is much, much, much different than that. He's like, like jokes, laughs, very friendly, very kind. It's just you got to bust through that opening, like little bit of uh, of, of uh, personality to get to like the the real Eugene underneath it. When you when you interviewed all of the industry people, people like Denise Benson and uh, you know DJ X, um, I think it, Jonathan Ramos was in there as well. <laughs> if I recall correctly. Did, what did, what did, because it's a little bit different. Like the DJs um, had their uh, love of play to record. What were the industry people kind of feel, like? Like, was there a reliance on play to record to arm the DJs with shit that would be played in the club that they were promoting? Like, like was it was it an ecosystem like that, or was it sort of a hindsight thing for these industry people to sort of look at the importance of that story? No, no, they saw the time period. I think it was. It's- it was different for everyone. I mean, some like Jonathan Ramos, who definitely was more into the to hip hop, uh, promoting hip hop shows. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Ramos ever did non hip hop shows. Maybe he did. I, he I did. Don't know. He did. Uh, he did some R and B stuff. Like I mean, I, I remember seeing uh, John Legend at Fez Batik, and that was one okay. of his shows. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. So, but Ramos, uh, the impression I got from Ramos was that uh, uh, Jonathan was that uh, you know he he loved the place. He loved interacting with people. So I think with him it was like that the the environment. He really enjoyed the environment. Uh, other uh, people that, that we talked to, you know, they had places like Star Sound as well. They had Carnival as well. They had Trucks. Well, so they're loyal. It was not that they didn't love Play to Record. It's just that they also loved other places as well. So that you kind of get that sense like, yeah, we love Play to Record and we love this and we love that and we love this right. and love that. So I think they just wanted to, to them, it was more like, okay, we, you know, Play to Record was great, but we just want to make, you know, it wasn't the only place. It wasn't the only hub. Um, there was other places out there as well, which there were, right? Um, so I think it just kind of, that was the, the approach for some uh, people in terms of uh, how they viewed things. And what, is the store, the store is still open? Is that my understanding? Oh yeah, it's on Spadina, Spadina and uh, College. Spadina and, um, oh, yeah, Spadina and College. So we, I mean, did, I know vinyl, never really went away because it became kind of like, I know thrust still presses vinyl when he releases music, right. For example, but vinyl itself is obviously down, uh, right. Since digital came around, but it, it comes, it kind of comes, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? It, it? Like every five years or so, there seems to be a spike in vinyl popularity and then it goes back down again. What did you find uh, when it came, when it came to that kind of stuff? Well, I found that this, it's been going, um, up trending up I, I think the only reason why it trended down recently was because of covid right uh and, and the uh the effect that covid had on the pricing of vinyl records was was big uh you know you go to the record store look at prices of vinyl that's it's a little bit different than it was i remember hearing stories about people in the 90s going and saying we're going to go get a 12 inch sort of a single right but like we're going to get a 12 yeah. inch and we're going to get lunch for ten dollars yeah. Well, now right. you're not getting anything for ten dollars. I don't know what. Get a coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. So I think that um, you know, but but I do. But I heard recently that you know records have now outselling CDs. Like you know, it's it's. Um, I got into records myself like four or five years ago. Um, so I, I think that record, you know, 
uh, I think that people are coming back. They kind of went away from it come to the convenience of technology, right? Yeah. But now that that's kind of, everyone's gotten used to the whole convenience of it, they're like, oh, you know what? I kind of miss having the album covers. I did. That's one of the reasons I love having the album covers. I love having that crackling sound of the record player, right? Yeah. So I think that's... The pops, yeah, for sure. And it'll never be like it was before. It'll never be like it was before, but that's okay. It's still good. It's still, there's still people that love it. Still people love the record culture, the vinyl culture. They're still buying it. And, I, and the fact that it's still going today when other mediums are long gone, or not gone, but, you know, not as, as much. I think records are going to be around for for a very long time. I so. think you might be right. And, and it was interesting when you got to the part of the documentary where you were talking about what do they called again? CDJs, where they where they would use the software and the CDs. And it yeah, was like Serato was the other thing. So like the main the main thing yeah. was I'm not I, I get a little confused myself, but Serato was like the big program that right. kind of worked things. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember at the time, and this always happens uh, in in certain music scenes. It happens in hip hop when uh, when the first commercial hits happened, like back in the day, like when when uh, you know Young MC and MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice and all that shit. There was like a trend in the early '90s for to to sort of spotlight all of the worst rappers and make them stars, and it it, it divided uh, a lot of people because all of a sudden people are like you know people that don't normally like hip hop think that you know that stuff is like you know, really good hip hop and us purists were like, no, 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 no. Right. And I feel like Serato and the tech that came with like, you know, uh, doing away with vinyl and using CDs instead, it kind of split it in two as well between those two camps. And I think the, 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 the tech camp kind of won because I think, uh, I mean, even clubs stopped carrying turntables. They, they didn't have 1200s anymore. They had, you know, they, they, they expected people to bring in their laptops. Did you, did you like uncover a lot of that and any sort of like frustration amongst old DJs about that sort of sea change? No, I thought there would be more. There's one element though, that, that, that kind of puts a lot more people on the Serato side of the coin. Yeah. Um, for DJs, a lot of DJs were able to get shows outside the city, right? So if you wanted to go to Vancouver, Halifax, Miami, uh, New York, you're taking a plane. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to, you know, what what they did do, sorry, not what what were they going to do, but what they did do was they had to fill up their two, three, four crates of records, take that to the airport, get on the plane with them, get off the plane, hope you don't lose them, hopefully you don't pay active charges. Um, And that, and so when they found out, oh, we don't have to bring these massive pieces of luggage with us anymore, well, that sounds pretty good to me. That's yeah. so that's kind of where, you know, I, and I know that there are people out there that I think even people that that uh, switch to Serato is still kind of like, oh, man, I kind of miss the vinyl and the, the experience with vinyl. But, you know, then the, the other aspect, too, is if you're playing vinyl in a club, there are people hitting the table. Um, you know, if you're outside, is the wind affecting it? Like it's a little more challenging in the, from the elements as, uh, aspect as well. So I think what people looked at was, yeah, they missed the vinyl. But the convenience of the Serato from all these different elements, even if it's just flying, was a big benefit to, to a lot of DJs. So I, I think it was one of those things where they hated to switch, but they yeah. also wanted to switch. Yeah, you're reminding me now. You're you're kind of flooding back memories now of when I used to throw raves. And so we were the first promotion team to bring Tiesto over. And I remember um, we brought over uh, Armin Van Buren once. And he got stopped at Customs because... Uh, because he had a creative records and they didn't believe him that he wasn't coming to work. Right. And because all of our, no DJ that 
no DJ ever says to customs, yeah, I'm here on business. They just say, I'm here, I'm, I'm here to visit a friend. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Cause they didn't want to pay extra freight charges and all this other shit. And they didn't want to be seen as a person that was working if they didn't have a visa and so on and so forth. And it was a really big problem. So that, that did kind of solve that problem. And I was, I only threw uh, events uh, until like 2009 or something like that. So it was like, it was a problem at the beginning and then afterwards, but people became nostalgic for milk crates. Like, I, I used to use milk crates as coffee tables, man. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it was, I knew a guy that had a bed made out of milk crates. Really? He did. Like, really? That was like the structure and he put the mattress in the middle. And I was Well, the funny like, thing is, if you watch, uh, for people who watch uh, the movie, uh, Drop the Needle, um, Tracks is the competitor and you will see in the, if you look in the movie, I'm, Quite sure you'll see some tracks related milk crates hanging around plate of record on the ground there. I can't, I can't remember where in the movie, but I'm pretty sure you see tracks related milk crates. So that's yeah, those milk crates were were big, yeah. Um well I mean, did you always want to be a filmmaker? Was oh, yeah. it something that yeah? How, <clears throat> yeah? how did that start? Let's get to know you a little bit. How did that how did that come about? Like what do you remember when you were like, yeah, this is what I want to do? I don't know, I don't remember when I uh, that aspect of it. I just remember at a young age, I wanted to do it. And uh, I just remember as well, it kind of said at the start was that um, I had a mentality where, you know, I thought that I was, I had the skill set already there based on nothing, based on me just watching movies. Like, oh, wow, I really like a uh, taxi driver. I must be a really good filmmaker now. <laughs> well, that's not how it works. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but it took me a long time, unfortunately, to figure out that it is actually a process that you have to go through, right? I was just like, I was hoping to get lucky and that I already had the skill set. It didn't happen that way. <clears throat> so, anyhow, I said, like I said, I, uh, I had an opportunity with Neil, my buddy, to make, uh, you know, that one documentary that proved to be a, 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 an eye opener in terms of what uh, where I was at that time period. So what I was able to do after that, which was 2007, 2008. I just was able to make uh, different things on the side, make it sort of uh, for friends and family, just always practicing the editing, produced a couple of short, uh, short uh, low budget uh, films to kind of get used to the producing aspect. And then in 2000 and uh, what, 19 or 18, I guess it was 18, when the Raptors won the championship, yeah, um, I really, I remember going to HMV back in the day and always, I'm a, a DVD collector. And I always remember seeing those championship uh, recap DVDs for championship teams like basketball, oh, yeah, so uh, yeah. basketball ones, right? Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if the Raptors ever win, which they, at that time I thought was impossible, yeah. this is probably like the, the <laughs> Brian Colangelo years. Uh, I was always thought to myself, uh, I mean, I would love to buy this uh Blu ray when it comes out for the Raptors. So when it looked like the Raptors were going to have a chance to winning it, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to make my own. I'm just going to download clips, put whatever music I want on it. I'm going to burn it onto a disc, be 45 minutes long. I'll put it in my collection. You know, I'll make my own, right? Why not? It'd be fun. So it was going to be 45 minutes long. Uh, The rough cut ended up being three and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, and I, 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 that was obviously two. And then by that point in time, because I spent so much time on, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to upload this to YouTube at the very least because a lot of people see it. Got it down to two hours and 20 minutes, which still seems long. But when I posted it on the YouTube, I will say that there was, uh, it was actually the start of COVID. For some reason, there was a big boost in like number of people who saw it. And the feedback that I was getting for it was really like, you know, it was very uh, uh, heartwarming in terms of what people were saying about it. Like they were seeing it as an actual something that could be on Netflix or Amazon or something like that. So that was I kind think of. I like, saw that. I think yeah. I saw that. What was it called? Do you remember? Northern Uprising. 
I did see that. Did you use the Peter Jackson track? Peter Jackson is a rapper no, from Canada who has. I don't like remember a, using one of his tracks, but I use a lot of songs. It's very possible. I can't remember. I used a lot of music in that. Well, he had one just for the Raptors that he made for the Raptors, and and oh, it okay, was wait, like no, the no. year before they won the championship that he put it out. But so what, he's what on the show happened, tomorrow, by the way. <laughs> well, see what 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 happened was in that documentary. What I did was I it was all archive clips, right? So I, I was no narration. There was no voiceover. It was just oh. clips of from the beginning of the season to the end, so you could see the whole buildup. And so me using the archive clips, I would have taken stuff that they would have seen on TV. So oh, it's very okay. possible that he would have used something of his yeah. in the archive clip that I use in the mix of the thing. But I also used, you know, I used uh, They Reminisce Over You uh, as my opening credit sequence. I used uh, an Underachievers song at the end, near the end of the movie. I used a Mock Deep. So I was adding my own music in there as well while I was making my uh, compilations. How many copyright claims did you get for that one? <laughs> A lot, but you remember with YouTube though, <clears throat> it got taken off recently. It was up there for three years. Oh, really? I, I hate how YouTube like has these delayed, like people could delay their uh, their their copyright thing, right? It was up there for three years. I didn't have any issues. Um, I made a second one afterwards, and I got uh, there was a Jay Z song that I got hit on. I had to take a Jay Z song out, yeah. but anyhow, I made that. It gave me the confidence I needed to go to say, okay, you know what? All I got to do is do this but for real and yeah. that's where i said to my friend neil i said neil <clears throat> we have an opportunity to make something i was thinking sports related because i just did that mm -hmm. i said do you have any ideas and he said uh, he's a journalist who works in sports so that's kind of why i was thinking he might have something sports related but he then said play the record because he was going to do a uh, written article on the on the store he said play the record it took me about 24 hours to kind of fully come on board but within 24 hours i was fully on board because I'd never been in the store before, personally, right. uh, the, young, the Young Street one. I was fully on board. And I'll tell you right now, as someone who's been spending the last couple of months trying to think of the next idea, and I do have it now, but spending the last couple of months thinking of what the next idea is going to be, the fact that Neil had that idea, I, I the appreciation for him having that idea has grown so much. Because having a great, a good idea is, is like such a half the battle sometimes when it comes totally. to filmmaking. So and, but the that, idea... The idea is so good, dude. Like, like uh, it, it lends itself, and I'm not, you know, this is just me spitballing here, but because you are from Kingston and you weren't ensconced in the scene, I actually think work to your benefit, right? Because you weren't looking at it through a tinted lens of biasness or whatever. Drop the needle New York, drop the needle Chicago, drop the needle, like you could do the same concept in virtually any city because every city has that story. Right, every oh, yeah, you know. So I don't know what you're. I'm not, I hope I'm not giving away the bank here, but like. No, 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 no. For me, I do want to do something a little bit different, though. So creatively, though, I've already made drop the needle, so I don't yeah. really want to do the exact same thing. I'm. I, I, we have something that we consider to be like the cousin to drop the needle, right? Uh, yeah. But I can't. I can't get into it too much more detail. But I will say this though, that what your point, like when the movie screened in like Calgary, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Ottawa, you know, the screen, all these different towns and cities. And I remember thinking to myself, some people are looking at the movie saying, well, it's just a, it's a Toronto based store. Like, are we that interested? I'm like, okay, it is a Toronto based store and it's talking with the Toronto culture, but every decent sized town and city has, a, has a hub, has a yeah, record store, that's right. has this culture, their version of this culture, their MCs, their, DJs, their, you know, uh, house music producers, you know, whatever the case may be, they have their own version of it. So even though you're not seeing necessarily your version in, in Drop the Needle, you can relate, though, 
so 100%. you can picture yourself in the story of play to record so i think that's why this actually does play a lot more outside the gta because it's a universal story even though if it's just talking about the one specific place 100 i agree um where and when did it premiere and where can people see it now if they wanted to Oh, well, that's a good question. So it premiered in October at Hot Dog Cinema in Toronto. We had two uh, sold out screenings there during a two week span in October. Mm -hmm. um, and then we then for the next two, three months, we were that was when we were like going around uh, the country doing screenings here and there. Um, in terms of where they could see it next, I really wish I had the answers for you. Uh, and I do actually have the answer for it. I do have the answer, but I can't share it yet. Come on, so, Netflix. Come on. <clears throat> well, <laughs> We can't, uh, the thing is that wherever it does go, um, you, you're now in a partnership with them, right? Right. So yeah. beforehand, for the three years, uh, it was myself driving the bus when it came to the movie, right? Like I was yeah. posting what I wanted. I, it was me driving the bus. It's not, that's not the case anymore, which is good. Which Do is they want to cut it? Do they want to cut it down a bit? No, 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 oh, no. That's it's good. Like that. No, no, it's just about the announcement. It's all about the announcement. That's all I'm oh, referring okay. to. It's just about when we say, what's happening with the movie and i can tell you that it's going to be very 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 it's not this week but very very soon afterwards okay we're going to be able to kind of share everything and then also uh, and and where you're going to be able to see it at home is not going to be too too long after that okay uh but i just can't go into more details because they have to do it first well listen man like i not only was played a record um a cultural hub i think your movie will sort of become um, you know, I think it's going to have a cult following in this country once it's accessible to people because it really did strike all of the right nostalgia notes for those of us who remember what it was like back then. And who, yeah. like I, I've been to play the record, I don't know, 30, 40 times in my life. So I wasn't one of the mainstay guys or anything like that. But I remember it. I remember how the store smells. I remember walking in and going, why are brass knuckles here? And then <laughs> the latest J Rue 12 inch over there. Like that was really weird to me. But um, I, I'm very proud of you as a Canadian to as one Canadian to another. I think that what you did was a service to the culture. And uh, and and I think yeah, you should be commended. Um, oh, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and also, I appreciate you coming on Blackball tonight. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the talking about it. And, you know, it was uh, quite the journey. And I'm really like I said, it was uh, a million dollar idea that I didn't realize at the time it was a million dollar idea. I thought it was a great idea, but I didn't realize it was a million dollar idea. Yeah. And I'm really just happy that me and Neil were able to kind of bring our DNA to the story and kind of share that experience of telling this amazing cultural land uh, landmark and having us being able to kind of infuse what our, we consider to be our creative DNA with it to make something that hopefully will, you know, will be remembered for, for a little while and so forth. Well, it resonated with this kid. So, you know, like keep up the good work uh, and we'll have you back. And whenever you want to come back to talk about, hey, I don't know like what's going on with this film yet. I know it's not next week, but whenever it happens or whatever, once the uh, once the reception is gained, maybe you can come back and give us an update. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate your time, bud. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Rob Freeman, everybody. Oh, oh, what a great movie. I can't wait for it to come out, guys. I, I know that it is something that... Uh, not everyone is into, but you don't have to be, um, you know, like I would watch a documentary, um, you know, that was, uh, that gave the same vibe that was about virtually any genre of music. Uh, because really what it did is it pulled the curtain back on a culture that was still sort of in its infancy, or at least, you know, um, like the, the, it was a teenager, really the culture at the time. 
at, like literally like uh, 1990 you know hip hop was uh, basically what 16 years old um you know and and most of the people that were digging in the crates back then were were older than the culture itself and they sort of helped make the 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 collage that turned into whatever hip hop became in Canada and uh you guys know me I, i'm a i'm a hip hop head so th this movie spoke to me um so again it's called drop the needle uh take I'll, I'll make an announcement um the next time that or w when we find out when it's actually coming out and where it's coming out and uh, i'll promote the hell out of this movie because it was that dope okay uh tomorrow tomorrow's gonna be crazy i will have james connell on the show james connell is a human rights attorney and he will be in Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba at Gitmo. I think I'm the first podcaster to actually uh, do a podcast where my guest is inside Gitmo prison. Uh, I, I can't confirm that yet, but I'm told by uh, James Connell's law firm that that, that that is the case. In which case, dope. Um, Gitmo has been the subject of much controversy, obviously, since it opened back in, I guess it was 2000 one or 2002 um there's still 32 inmates left at Gitmo, just wasting away um most of them haven't been charged with anything a lot of them are uh you know have been tortured uh you know and and it really there's a there's a there's a couple of heinous stories that we're going to get into he still represents two inmates that's why he's at Gitmo. if you recall uh i had alka pradan on the show I think it was like two months ago now. Um, and she's another human rights attorney. And, uh, you know, and she, there's just the stories that the psychological trauma that happens to these inmates uh, cannot be overstated. So uh, that's James Connell. That's tomorrow. And then Peter Jackson, uh, one of Canada's best hip hop artists. And he's now kind of a mogul, I would say. He's a good entrepreneur. He handles tours for big acts that come up from the States. He is on Thursday. And then Friday, uh, casual Friday, we'll be back. I promise you it'll be better than last week. Actually, I can't make that promise. I'm not the one that controls the satellites on Starlink. And I know Jen Waddell is about to tell me that a bunch of monkeys died, but um, it's all I have for internet. <laughs> okay, everybody, we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Thanks for joining. Black It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. 
Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.